Tourette is a multi-generational, multimedia portrait of black men sharing their wisdom, engaging anecdotes, and life lessons on how to deal with racism, being a threat, and negative stereotypes surrounding black males. Hey, welcome to A Threat. This is the very first episode, and I have a really extremely special guest, my father. His name is James E. Moss. So what I'm going to do first is I'm just going to read his bio. Now, his bio was two pages, but it goes for a lot of twists and turns. So being that my dad has lived such an an extraordinary life up to this point, um, and he's 71, that I really do think that is necessary for me to read all of this because it's very hard to put someone's life into a couple of pages. You know what I'm saying? So just going to read this all off to you so you get a very well-rounded and thorough uh, approach or idea of who my father is. All right? So here we go. James E. Moss was born in Columbus, Ohio, and he attended Columbus Public Schools. He graduated from Central High School in 1967. After high school, Mr. Moss joined the U.S. Army. He was an airborne ranger in the Vietnam War, and he obtained the rank of sergeant. He received the Combat Infantry Badge and other medals while serving in the Vietnam War from 1968 to 1969. Mr. Moss graduated from Ohio Dominican College with a Bachelor of Arts degree in Business Administration. He furthered his education by receiving two master's degrees from the Ohio State University. He has a master's in Black Studies and a master's in U.S. History. Mr. Moss has finished his coursework for his doctorate degree in American History. Uh, He joined the Columbus Police Department in 1970. He worked for the Patrol Bureau, Organized Crime Unit, and the Burglary Squad. He retired in 1994 with 24 years of law enforcement training and obtained the rank of sergeant. He received a Chief of Police Award for Bravery and Community Service, was nominated twice for Police Officer of the Year, and received the Police Officer of the Year Award from the National Black Police Association in 1993 and Coach of the Year in 1983 for the Columbus Police Athletic League. He received the Jefferson Award for Public Service in 1986 for his volunteer work with the Police Athletic League. He attended many law enforcement schools and has conducted many workshops and seminars of various different topics. Mr. Moss has taught in the Black Studies Department of the Ohio State University as a graduate student and he taught several adult courses in African-American history at local churches in Columbus. He has taught in the Columbus public school system, in the Eastland Vocational School. He has taught African-American studies course at the Training Institute of Ohio with the State of Ohio Department of Youth Services in Columbus, Ohio. He 
worked as a head tutor for the Central YMCA Project 2000, which is an after-school program for any inner-city children. My dad, my dad has an extensive background in law enforcement and civil rights and has made him a news source for many national newspapers, the Boston Globe, Arizona Republic, Cincinnati Inquirer, the St. Louis American, Columbus Dispatch, just a few. He has had articles written about him. He's been in Who's Who in Black America since 1987 and Who's Who in Black Central Ohio. He's been a co-host of an urban radio talk show, Voice of the People on Z103 in Columbus. He's been on C-SPAN, CNN News, and many other national and local television news networks. He has appeared as a guest on several local and national talk shows. You know, he's been on Tom Joyner, uh, Tom Joyner Radio Morning Show. And he was given a National Hero Award for his community work in Ohio on the Tom Dancer National Radio Show. Mr. Moss is recognized as an expert in police issues, and he has testified on many occasions as an expert witness involving police issues and related investigations. Mr. Moss represented the National Black Police Association as a panelist for the U.S. Civil Rights Commission on Racism and Law Enforcement in 1995. Mr. Moss has traveled throughout the United States where he has given speeches to national groups in Phoenix, Chicago, Detroit, St. Louis, and many other cities in Ohio on various civil rights issues. He's the president of the Police Officers for Equal Rights, which is an organization that monitors and files formal complaints against law enforcement agencies, police and prison personnel, and citizens' discrimination complaints. On March 30th, 1995, uh, my dad, he filed an original action in Ohio Supreme Court contesting Ohio Revised Code 149.43 and uh, another on April 20th, 1995. The court issued a ruling in favor of James Moss to allow police records open to the public for review and copying. And he used this law to get thousands of records from Columbus the Peace Department to gain access to evidence to file complaints against the police uh, department with the United States Department of Justice. In 95, he started the investigation of the Columbus, Ohio Police Department for police misconduct. He made many trips to D.C. to the U.S. Department of Justice, and he took thousands of police files, pictures, videotapes, cassette tapes, and other evidence to prove the alleged police misconduct. His dedication and hard work paid off in July 97 when the U.S. Department of Justice found the Columbus Police Department guilty of police misconduct involving excessive use of force, illegal arrest, illegal search and seizure, and violations of numerous civil rights laws against African-American citizens. In October of 1999, the U.S. Department of Justice filed a lawsuit against the Columbus Police Department. And Columbus is the only city in the United States being sued by the U.S. Department of Justice for police misconduct. And the charge of racial profiling was amended to the lawsuit in December of 99. Mr. Moss is the founder and president of Moss & Associates 
consulting firm founded in Columbus, Ohio, but is now located in Georgia. His company has conducted workshops on cultural diversity, race relations, community policing, racial profiling, community organizing, and crisis intervention without using force in many other subjects. Mr. Moss has a top secret background clearance from the United States government, and he has worked as an, an investigator for the international investigations in Chantilly, Virginia. Mr. Moss has written several papers that have been published in several universities, newspapers, and magazines. And Mr. Moss is married to my mom, Andrea, and they have four children, Chandrika, which is my older sister, Marque, my older brother, me, and my younger sister, Jamila. My parents have 10 grandchildren, and they now live in Georgia, on the south side, Fayetteville, where he is a member of the Shaw Temple Amy Zion Church and sings in the male choir. His hobbies include playing his guitar, singing, fishing, jogging, and spending time with his ever-loving and growing family. I feel like it's important for Black men to be able to speak for themselves and to have our own voice. And there's times where, you know, I will have a conversation with you and you'll be able to give me some wisdom or advice or insight on life because of your experience and experiences here on earth. So if people don't have the opportunity to meet you or get to know you or talk with you, this is a way for me to amplify black men's voices who have something to say and have insight of how to deal with day-to-day issues, whether especially when it is regarding racism, how we're viewed in society, et cetera. So I think I'm going to use this uh, platform to amplify black men's voices of various generations. Because you're a generation above me. I want to interview people who are like around my age and younger so we could just all express ourselves and have a voice and have an exchange of wisdom between each other. My first question is, can you share with me one of your earliest or most memorable personal experiences of dealing with racism or being considered a threat? Yes. One of my first uh, uh, dealing with racism, I was in the second grade. My second grade teacher, who was white, uh, was named Miss Clark. She was going around the room. Okay, so I'm sorry. What what, what year would this be? It was second grade. Second grade? It had to be, I see, 19... I think 1956, 1957. Okay, sorry, go ahead. And uh, she was going around the room asking people, uh, I take that back on the year, I think it was it was 55 to 56, I'm sorry. Okay, yeah, so well, some time around there. Okay, so she was going around asking students what they wanted to be. Oh. And uh, at the time, uh, I really wanted to be a jet airplane pilot. So when it came to my turn, she asked me, you know, James, what you want to be? I said, I want to be a jet airline pilot. She said, no, you can't be that. Won't you just be uh, satisfied 
to be like Duck, Mr. Duck. Now, Mr. Duck was the black janitor at Levin Avenue Elementary School. And I said, I don't want to be like Mr. Duck. I want to be a jet airplane pilot. She said, oh, no, you'll never be a jet airplane pilot. Uh, the best thing you should do is just try to get a job like Mr. Duck. Mm. So I became very upset. So when I came home, I told my mother, and she became very upset. And she sat down and told me, she said, that white teachers is, you know, is a racist. And she said that you can be anything you want to be. The color of your skin don't dictate how far you can go in life. She said, you're very smart. Don't ever let no one, especially a white person, tell you what you can't It cannot be. And that kind of stuck in the back of my head for a long time. Mm -hmm. As I progress in my education and other things, always that's still embedded in my brain when she said that. Now, it wasn't no, I like Mr. Duck. It was not like his job was demeaning, but it's just the fact she said that like a janitorial job was the only job that I could ever would hope to get that being a jet airline pilot was just out of my reach. Right. Yeah, because every profession has their purpose or meaning, right. but it was wrong of her to try to limit your dreams like it's wrong for people to tell you what you can dream towards. If you're willing to have a dream and want to do something and and for you to be so young, it is just crazy to think how it's how it starts that young. So yes. what if you didn't have a, a mother like, like, like grandma and, and she would, she didn't give you those wise words. Like how would that have affected you? You know what I'm saying? So it's like, it, it's such a it's such a trip how how that that can be instilled in you so young and and you're 71 now and you still remember that you remember her name you remember the janitor's name right. you remember that moment so can you discuss how let's say a, a, another memorable experience of being considered a threat has impacted your personal perspective as you were growing up I think uh, when I was growing up in the neighborhood. Uh, I'm sorry, the, this is uh, Columbus, Ohio. Columbus, Ohio, yes. Yeah. Uh, every time we saw the police, we would run because we were told, you know, they was going to arrest you or do something bad to you. And I didn't know why, but when we saw the police, we would just, just run away from them. Uh, we didn't want to be uh, close to them. And I never understood when I was you know, young, why we were running away from the police and, you know, why they seen us as a, 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 a threat to them. And then when I uh, started a, a middle junior high school, I recall there was a fight at this carry out a large crowd together and the police came and the police came and they had their, uh, night, uh, clubs and they was hitting students and as students was running and wrestling students and I didn't understand because there was only two students fighting. I didn't understand why the police was hitting students with the billy clubs and the rest of students. So I started running and then I knew that when there's a fight or something going on, even though you're an innocent bystander, 
to, to get out of harm's way, you better run or the police going to hit you with your, you know, with their sticks and uh, also may possibly arrest you. That happened uh, to my brother Alfonso. He was watching a fight and him and a group of guys started running and a lot of policemen was chasing. He was going over the fence and a policeman took a stick and hit him as he was going over the fence and, of course, caught him and arrested him and took him down to juvenile. And his only crime was that he was watching a fight. He was not engaged in a fight. So at the time when white policemen came, when one or two people was fighting and you're watching the fight, they would arrest everybody that was watching. And even though you weren't involved or if you just walking past that location, you got arrested. That's crazy because you said you were running and you didn't even know why. So it was already like an established norm to when you see police, whether you did anything or not, just to run. And I imagine that if police are seeing people running, their assumption is that you did something. Or maybe if you didn't do do something, they just know that they just have uh, this vitriol towards black people. Can you uh, tell me about some of the male figures and role models and or mentors that empowered you to cope with racism and being considered a threat to society? Okay, uh, my first role model would be my father. He, mm-hmm. called, he was a, uh, a, a strong worker. He worked in the steel factory, and then he walked to work every day, and then he would work painting and cutting grass and flintual white neighborhood called Bexley where rich white Jewish people live. Mm-hmm. But, uh, the reason he's my role model because he was he uh, was very a very strong man and strong will. I recall one day uh, these two white insurance agents came to our house and there was that what you call industrial insurance, which is they don't sell it no more. It's dollar a week, and it was until you die, and the policy was like three or four hundred dollars. And we was on the front porch and my father was on the front porch and the white insurance agent said, you know, uh, he didn't call him even Mr. Moss. He said, Frank, you know, you're, you're behind on your policy. I brought my boss out of here, boss here to explain to you that you need, he said, not need. He said, you better pay your <laughs> policy or it's going to lapse. And my father said, uh, what did you say? He said, you heard me. I said, you better pay your policy. And my father said, you don't tell me what to do and when to do. And he said, uh, you need to get off you know, my porch. And the guy said, I'm not uh, going anywhere, uh, Frank. We want to hear talk to you about paying uh, your policy. My father said, I'm warning you to get off my porch now. And the guy said, you need to pay your insurance policy, Frank, do you understand that? At that time, my father, uh, he hit the one guy and the other guy was turning around and run and my father kicked him in the butt. He fell off the porch. (laughs) (laughs) And my father turned to us, our boys were sitting, he said, don't ever let a man, a special white man, come on your house, on your porch, and tell you what you better do. He said, I run my own house and nobody tells me what to do. He said, I'm, you know, I'm the boss of this house, not no white man or nobody. And that 
stuck with me a long time, you know, that uh, he was that uh, type of man that didn't take no nonsense from, uh, for, from uh, white people. And yeah. he stood his ground. And uh, I really, you know, he just, that's, that's the way he was. And he always uh, uh, defended us when we uh, were involved with something. He was ready to, you know, get physical anytime, anywhere. There's another incident where this uh, man, Mr. Hicks, he had all these fruit trees. And it was kind of comical because we have fruit trees too, but mm-hmm. we like this fruit a little better. So we used to sleep out on the porch in the summer, me and my brothers, because it was so high. So we go raid his fruit trees and steal his fruit. So we was laying on the porch one night, and <laughs> and my father, he has to get up, I think at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning to go to the steel mill. And he slept in the living room on the couch, him and my mother. So uh, Mr. Hicks was banging on the door about three o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And my father comes to the door and the screen door was, was there. And he said, my father said, you know, what in the hell are you doing waking me up at three o'clock in the morning, Mr. Hicks? He says, your boys just stole some apples from my fruit tree <laughs> and uh, I want you to do something about it. And my father said, you woke me up three o'clock in the morning to tell me that my boy stole some fruit from your tree and I got to go to work. He said, yes, that's right. My father said, you, you better get the hell off my porch. And Mr. Hicks said, I'm not going nowhere until you wake those boys up and we'll find out, did they rape my fruit trees? That was the last thing he said because my father, <laughs> he hit him through the screen and broke the screen again. He went tumbling <laughs> off the porch. He was, was on the blanket laughing, and my father was saying, Mr. Hicks was running off the porch. After my father hit him. He said, don't you ever wake me up 3 o'clock in the morning talking about some boys stealing fruit from the trees, and I got to go to work at 5 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> oh, Grandpa Frank. <laughs> <laughs> he was the bad man. <laughs> Yeah, I never, I never, I never got the pleasure to meet him. He never did, uh, you know, question us about whether he did or not. Just the fact that he woke him up at three o'clock in the morning and demanded that my father wake us up. So that's the way my father was. Yeah, it seemed like grand, Grandpa like inspired what instilled within y'all be, uh, the ability to stand for yourselves and defend yourselves, right? Because I feel like, you know, with all the pressure that and all the things we have to deal with in society, that's very important for us to be able to not be no punk and uh, be able to defend ourselves and not be bullied. And uh, sometimes I have some conversations with other people about bullies and kids and stuff like that. And the thing is, I feel like bullies, they, they build character because it makes you have to stand up for yourself. I'm not I'm not saying that it's a good thing to bully. Right. But, but it's a good thing for for we have to learn how to defend ourselves and not have anybody talk to us any type of way. Right. Yeah. So it was just a strong bond. It was five boys in our family and three girls. And, you know, I learned how to uh box at an early age because my brother William, my oldest brother, he was a boxer and he 
box for the boys club and he was one of the toughest guys in the neighborhood nobody did they feared him because he had i mean he he could really fight and not only in the ring but <laughs> outside the ring mm. and so uh he was that way you know and he let people know if you jump on one of his brothers you got the answer uh to him right and and there was occasion when i was going to a festival at our elementary school and somehow I ended up walking by myself. And when I got to the underpass, there was this guy, uh, we call him Johnny Ragmop. And I can't, uh, why do you call him that? Because he was real sloppy and his pants would be sagging. <laughs> you call him Johnny Wetmop? <laughs> that was a name the neighborhood people gave me was, Johnny Ragmop. Oh, Ragmop. Yeah. Your Uncle Gifford knows his real name, but that's the only name I knew him by. And so I had 50 cents to spend at the festival. And he said, uh, I was going to Vodak and he stopped me and he said, uh, what you got? And I said, what you talking about? Said, How much money you got? And I said, I got 50 cents for the festival. He said, give it here. Because he was, I mean, he was, I was only like in maybe the third or fourth grade. And he was, he was a pretty big guy. So I gave him uh, my money and uh, I started running back home and he was walking real slow. And he said, by the way, what's your name? And I said, James Moss. And he said, here, you can have this 50 cents back. He started, he started chasing me and I got to the front porch and my big brother, William, was standing there and I tell him that, Johnny Ragmark had took my 50 cents. So he, Johnny Ragmack was coming up our yard. He was trying to explain. He had the 50 cents. He said, hey, I didn't know that was your brother. And that was the last word that he got out of his mouth. My brother William took care of him. Mm. <laughs> I mean, he beat him up. And he kept on saying, I didn't know that was your brother. He, you know, so that's the type of bond. You know, my brother, uh, William, he was like, you know, you don't mess with none of my brothers, you know. And so we always know that I could go, you know, if, like you said, there was no bullies, but uh, guys older than I was. That was the only incident I had, but everybody in the neighborhood knew I was a moss and they didn't dare, uh, you know, touch me because they knew about my brother. Even my my other brother, we call him Sini, his name is Al Sini. When he would loud off and get ready to get in a fight and somebody say, hey, man, you better leave me alone, that's, uh, that's Bill Moss. <laughs> brother they would back off <laughs> mm. so that's the reputation my brother had <laughs> yeah that's great because i mean in regards of male figures you had your your dad as a role model then you also had brothers right put you down when you needed it so that's really cool and it just shows like how important it is to have you know brotherhood whether right. it's actual brothers whether it's cousins whether it's friends or people that you consider your your brother, that that's in, uh, important. So if anyone doesn't have anyone that can hold them accountable or defend them or support them, you got to, you got to, we have to seek that out if it doesn't happen naturally with relatives. Right. What advice and tools do you feel are most important to utilize when dealing with racism? First thing I think you should utilize is your brain you have to really think about what you're going to do how you're going to do it 
when you're confronted uh, with something involving uh, race, sometimes, you know, for instance, uh, when I was on uh, the Columbus Police Department, my first time I was on the street working as a patrol officer, I arrested this uh, black guy who was drunk. He was gambling and gambling on the street. And me and my white partner took him down to the jail. At that time, the jail was in the same place where the headquarters were, was rather. And then when I was taking him to the counter to be taking stuff out of his pocket, he had a hard time standing up because he was so drunk, you know, taking his money out, counting it in his belt, stuff like that. And as he was, as I was taking stuff out of his pocket, this big white slating officer had a, uh, a, a chair from an old table that he used as a club. And he kept on saying, stand up, stand up. And the guy, he, I took him by his, his pants to try to keep him stand up while the guy was, you know, we're taking the items, leaving the counter. So he got mad and took the, the chair leg and swung it, trying to hit my prisoner, where I blocked it. And when I blocked it, I took his arm and I pushed his arm and brought him over almost halfway over the counter. And he was a pretty big guy. He said, don't you ever put your hand on me. I said, don't you ever, you know, strike my prisoner. I said, he's my prisoner. Don't you ever attempt to hurt my prisoner. So the captain and the major and the sergeant lieutenant, they take me back in this room and I explained to them what happened. They said, well, you know, we're a team. We all got to work together. I said, yeah, but I said, I said, he's not going to hit my prisoner for nothing. The man didn't do nothing. He didn't deserve to be even hit with that stick. And I said, if he does it again, I'm going to do it again. They said, well, you know, that's not the way. I said, well, I just know that was wrong. He had no right to do it. And I said, I will stop it again. So later I found in my personnel file, when I got it, it labeled me as a radical and said, this police officer is going to be, 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 be a troublemaker because he's not a team player and he thinks too much about his race. That's what they put in my personnel file. And I'm glad you, you brought up the police departments. I was going to ask you about that. So we could, can we rewind some like, First, uh, could we go back to your Army days and then go to when you became a police officer and some of, some of the things you experienced in uh, Champion there? You, you were drafted? No, I wasn't drafted. Uh, what happened was 30 days and we were going to be at orders to go to Vietnam. So, so what were, what were the, uh, the, like the race relations like there? Uh, it was pretty bad. When we was in a... a f- uh, started him when I was in the NCO Academy. We went on an artillery class, and I, on the way back on the truck, I had a little flashlight, and I was looking at my map, and I had accidentally, as I was turning to my right, I flashed it in this white uh, soldier's face. He says, he said, nigga, if you flash that light one more time in my face, I'm going to take that flashlight and stick it up your, you know what? And I said, Wow. I said, let me see who this is. So I put the light further on his face and I said, I really didn't mean to do it. He said, well, when we get off this truck, I'm going to take care of you. So we get off 
uh, the trucks, he said, nigga, didn't I tell you I was going to, you know, kick your A-double-S? I said, yes, you did. I said, the only thing I want to do is apologize to you because I'm sorry that I put the light in your face because it really hurts you. I want to apologize to you. So we had these little clipboards. So I had put down my clipboard and him, some other white guys was laughing. They said, yeah, make him apologize, whatever his name. I can't remember his name. So I said, I want to apologize to you. And I, when I turned to my right, I came back and bam, hit him right in the, in the jaw. And he went down and he went down, took his head and I started stomping with my boots. And the black sergeant, I forget, he came over and said, look like that boy just fell down a set of steps. <laughs> he said, matter of fact, <laughs> several steps. He said, keep on working, him off. <laughs> I kept on, so I, I mean, he was bleeding. And uh, so a couple guys, brother said, that's, that's enough, Moss. He got the message. So we go back, and that morning, I think it was that Saturday, so I'm laying in, in, uh, in the, uh, my bunk. He comes in all bandaged up, coming through our, coming to our bed. So I'm thinking, uh-oh, he wants to get it on again. And I, had, I went and got my bayonet. <laughs> and I said, oh, you want some more? I said, I'm going to have to really hurt you this time. He said, oh, no, I want to apologize. I want to apologize. He says, uh, well, see where I come from, from Louisiana. He said, uh, you're the first really blacks I've been around. And that's what we do down there. And I didn't mean no harm. And I just want to apologize to you. And I, I'll never say that again to you. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, you know, even with that story there, I feel like there's this notion that because when uh, growing up and being my age, a lot of the stuff that we see in, I guess, movies or I just a lot of stories in general is kind of like docile uh, people who are afraid to to st- to stand up for themselves because of the conditions. Because when I think about the 50s and 60s, if I was like in Alabama or something, if you're looking at movies, they're like, you know, yes, sir. And crossing the street and 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 doing like that and don't want to bother white folks because they don't want no trouble. But then here you were. And this guy's from Louisiana. He was he he was socialized a certain way. And you're from Ohio and you, uh, you know, raised a certain way. Well, I said it to say because some of the like younger generation these days are like, oh, we're not our, we're not our grandfathers, we're not our ancestors, we ain't gonna uh, lay down like they lay down. But the truth is, is like y'all wasn't laying down, no, and, and y'all y'all were definitely fighting back, and y'all were definitely standing up for yourself. So I'm glad that you are sharing these stories about defending yourself because that's something that is kind of a misconception, or I think like a a generational gap uh, if this misconception is like oh the the older generation they didn't really stand up for themselves but you definitely did uh just uh, just about being a man man to man and being disrespected you weren't even thinking about his race for real just like yo you disrespected me and this is my response right and uh my mother she how we were raised and how my father was and she, when we had family members that died in Georgia, she would never take us down there. She would go by herself. She would never take us because she knew 
how things were in the South, and she knew how we would react to uh, the Jim Crow laws in the mm. South. And my father, he hated the South so bad that when he came up North to work at the steel mill, he never went back to Georgia, never in his life. He never even liked talking about uh, uh, Georgia. And so I know just by his demeanor that he probably experienced some really awful racism and mm-hmm. you know things that happened in the South. And it was other members of our family. Yeah, it's a different story. It's a different, different yeah. uh, experience in the South than... Right, it was the same place. way. I had a cousin, uh, Uncle Fletcher Lee. He worked for the railroad and they was going through Florida and he was a porter. And one of the guys got off, went in town, they would do that. But he said this town was really racist and they all had a small section of blacks. And he was, he said he had stayed on the train, him and the blacks. So when they got ready to move off, they kept on waiting on him and the conductor said, we're gonna have to leave without him. So as they were leaving, they went about five miles outside of town and they saw him hanging from a tree, tar and feather. Mm. And uh, he said he would never go to Florida again. And he refused to go to Florida. He hated Florida. So things like that uh, stuck in my mind and one time, my mother and uh, my uh, cousin, I don't really know his real name, we call him Cousin Cooter. <laughs> he had, a, he had a, this big old Roadmaster Buick. That's the whole thing about black folks. We always giving people these names and we don't even know their real names. Uh, I got to ask my cousin what his real name, but that was her uncle. But my mother said he was driving down around the mountains in a, a car full of Ku Klux Klan came and they would harassing him, hitting him in the back, then come on the side and call him all type of names. And it really was it was dangerous because it was trying to force him off the road. But my cousin Cooter, he was a truck driver, so he really knew how to drive a car, especially that year. And so they came around the mountain, and uh, he took the car and, and did a sharp, my mother said, some type of move to bump the truck, pick load with those Klan people over. Next thing you know, they saw the truck roll, rolling over the ravine, then it bursted in flames. Oh, wow. <laughs> My cousin Cooter kept on rolling. <laughs> so, you know, so uh, uh, those are the type of stories. Uh, my mother told me, you know, what they did. Again, you know, they, they, my cousin Cooter defended his family, you know? With yeah. His so it wasn't no, like, uh, like you said, being like scared, but they were strong black men. Another time my mother told us they, they had stopped at a roadside stop area and this white guy came over, I guess it was close to Halloween time and he knocked on the window and said, trick or treat. And he had a gun and again, <laughs> And my cousin Cooter said, what type of trick you uh, treat you want? And he pulled his big uh, revolver out and pointed at him. He took off and ran. <laughs> yeah. All right, cousin Cooter. 
So yeah, cousin Cody was bad running people off the road. I'm glad you could share that story and him not be affected by the statues of limitations. <laughs> <laughs> and then you know when they travel back there, I didn't know they always had the slop jar with them. They used the restroom and a whole lot of food because they couldn't stop. You know there was no place just to stop and get gas at some time. So they couldn't use the restroom. They couldn't get no food. So they had to carry their own food. Yeah, it's definitely something that we take for granted today, like just being able to stop anywhere we want and be able to fill up with gas and eat wherever we want. And it was, you know, because of, you know, our our ancestors who, who was going through that for us to be able to have those freedoms today. Even they seem small, like, wow, just to fill up gas. Right. Like some, it was people, it was a time where we couldn't do that. So you went to the army and you came back. Uh, how did you get into the police force? Well, when I came back, I was, uh, I'd served in a, as a ranger in, a, in, uh, in Vietnam. I was in combat and stuff. So when I got out of the war, I was stationed at, uh, uh, Fort Hayes. And I was on what you call notification, NOK, notification next of kin. The mm-hmm. person got killed in the military or serious injury. I was the guy to come up with the car and tell you, but I had with another person. So as I was stationed there, one day a guy come from, uh, he came from the D.C. Police Department. Two black guys came to our office and he said they were recruiting people for the police department. And the colonel said, you know, Moss, y'all are looking at that. So they came and talked to me, told me they would pay for my moving expenses and everything if I joined the D.C. Police Department. And I would get an early out, three months early from the uh, from the Army. At the time, I was dating uh, your mother, so I ran it by her. She said, you know, I don't know, you know, about you and us, you know, if we get married, moving to D.C. So... She really didn't really like it. And at the time, there was a whole lot of police officers getting shot in D.C. It was pretty rough. So I decided not to. So when I got out of the military, I took the test for the post office. I took a test for the fire department. And I took a test for the uh, police department while I was a student at the Columbus Business University. I was in college. And uh, so it happened that they called me first, the Columbus Police Department. So I, I had passed the test, and the reason I took the test was that my pastor, Mr. Uh, John Frazier, First ME Zion Church, he was on a, some type of board that had to try to recruit more black police officers, and he knew the mayor, so he convinced me uh, to take the test. So I passed the test, but when I got ready to go for my physical, uh, this doctor, he sit beside a window air condition and he turned it up on the highest setting it was. And that's all I could hear was that air condition. Then he's, he said, I want you to look straight ahead. And I looked straight ahead. He said, can you hear this? And I said, yes, I can hear the air condition. He said, no, can you hear this? I said, yeah, I hear the air condition because it was blowing right in my ear. So what he did, he put his watch up to my ear while the air conditioned on and he put down that I was deaf in both ears because I couldn't hear their hair's watch ticking. What in the world? So, uh, 
I, uh, so they rejected me. So I had just taken a physical before I got out and I knew the people there at Fort Hayes who ran the hearing test at the time. So he gave me a hearing test and I passed with flying colors. So I told. So it's trying to sabotage your, right. your test. Right. So I told Reverend uh, Fraser, so I gave him results of the test. He said, uh, that's all I need. So he called the mayor and the mayor called civil service department and told him, you know, that I had this other test that nothing was wrong with my hearing and also told him what the doctor did. So they went ahead and did away with the test, that bad hearing test. And, uh, and they hired me as, as a police officer in October 11, 1970. And I didn't go to the police academy. I was working like undercover for the police officer, uh, you know, going out on uh, looking at demonstrations and against the war, Vietnam War. And then they had me uh, working uh, this, uh, this black group called the Afro Set. And uh, they were running prostitutes off the streets on the east side and drug dealers and stuff like that. They had me uh, working as an undercover officer that's trying to say like they were a, uh, a militant group breaking laws and stuff. So when I gave my report, I told them that, no, they wouldn't break any laws. You know, they really believe what they were doing and uh, there was no threat. So when I, uh, before I went to the academy, I gave my report and what they did, they raided the Afro set, broke down the door and searched everything in there. And, and they said they thought they had some weapons and legal weapons and stuff and drugs. Of course, they found nothing. My report said they never had legal. So that made me very suspicious then the way the police department operated because I gave them a report it said they didn't have drugs, didn't have legal weapons, and they still made a uh, got a search warrant from the judge and just raided them anyway. And they didn't charge anyone there because they didn't have no drugs or legal weapons. Hmm. In January, I started a police academy. At the time, there were seven of us. That was the largest class of blacks that they ever had in the history of the seven community. out of seven out of how many? Fifty-two. Oh, wow. 52 and uh, one uh, one of us, uh, one black guy, he was a guard at Ohio State Penitentiary. He did not make it. He didn't graduate. So it ended up, but it was only uh, six of us. It was then uh, halfway through the academy, we got a black female, Mary Lester, joined because at the time, the police ladies they couldn't be police officers they just worked in the juvenile bureau and did juvenile cases so they didn't have to take all the training we did so there was only uh six of us and out of that six there's only three of us that remained on the police department and retired uh one got fired uh andy atwards who grew up in my neighborhood got killed in an ambush Wow. And uh, the other guy, he uh, 
uh, he he quit. So there's only out of that original class, there's only three that actually retired. You talking about the police? It just makes me think about how you saying that there's this. It sounds like there's this culture of. If you're on the police department, we're all moving as one unit, regardless if it's right or wrong. Like you was arresting that one, that one guy brought him to the police station and then somebody tried to beat on him there. Then they put something in your personnel file that said, oh, you're a radical and a troublemaker and you think about your race. But it's, I think that's a good point, especially during this climate that's going on right now, because I feel that a lot, you know, some police, don't are aren't taking a stand because it's like this quote unquote culture of of brotherhood, right? And that's what it is. It's called uh, uh, the uh, the blue code shit. of silence. Code blue. of silence. A blue line. Like if you cut me, I'm on my bud doesn't uh, bleed red. It blues. It re, it bleeds blue. We all the same, but it's not that way because. Black officers, when I came on, was treated much differently. We had to file federal lawsuits to get promotions and everything else. So I didn't feel that way. One thing that made me feel really strongly connected when I was in the war in Vietnam, the brothers over there, we all stuck together. I mean, you would go past a tent and there'd be brothers and they'd say, hey, man, come on in. You know, I don't care what unit you were. And we would give the black power salute. And when we saw Confederate flags, on uh, tanks or any type of equipment, we'd tear them down and tear. And if people try to stop us, we would fight them. You know that we had a strong unity. Every time we saw each other, we get the black power sign. You know we were really, uh, we really was really good as a unit. And unity was real strong among black troops in Vietnam. I brought that same mindset to me when I came on uh, the police department. I never bought into that remain silent and brotherhood because I feel and I always feel if I see something wrong that's not right, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something. So we was in the police academy and they elected me to chaplain for our graduating class and they were having these secret meetings about uh, the party we was going to have and everything. And I wasn't invited. They would have it during lunchtime. <laughs> I would never knew what was going on. So mm. they came to me and said it was having this country and Western band and it was having it this white place on the West side. And they asked me what I thought of, but I said, I'm not coming. They said, why not? I said, I know that you guys have been having these secret meetings and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an officer of the graduating class. You got a vice president, vice president, vice president, treasurer, and secretary. They're all white. I'm only black, and I'm a chaplain. And I'm not involved in this decision, so I'm not coming to uh, the party, graduation party. I'm not. I'm not participating. And so I went back and told the black officers what was happening, and all the black officers said it wasn't going, but. Andy Edwards, the one who got killed in ambush, she said, well, uh, I think I should go. I said, well, that's your, your prerogative. We're not going. So uh, the captain called me in. He said, uh, it's going to look kind of bad that only one black is showing up for our graduation party and stuff. I said, you should have thought of that before you had your secret meetings and didn't invite me to come because I would have told you we wouldn't come to no uh, party with no country and Western all-white band at a white club on the west side 
I said, you didn't want my input, so we're not coming. The answer is no. So, you know, that that became another label against me. They became upset uh, because of that. And then we was doing uh, training. And this sergeant, I can't think of his name right now, but he said, being a police officer is like being the nigger of the day. I got mad. I stormed out of that class at the break. I went to the commander. Hold on. What do, you, what, do, what do you mean by that? About the way you treat people, getting treated, you know, like, uh, like that's, you know, people don't like you. They call you pigs and stuff like that. And he went on explaining. So I went to the, command, uh, the commander of the academy and I said, you know, I want him to investigate. He should never use that word. I'm mean, like, he said, well, he was on the job. I said, no. I said, I'm filing an official complaint against him. And so I wrote it up and told him how I felt. Of course, nothing didn't happen uh, to that sergeant. They just, you know. Yeah, but at least you, you know, you did it and you were convicted to, you were convicted inside to, you know, be motivated to do that. And again, I mean, talking with you and just knowing about, you know, granddad and uh, Uncle Bill, like y'all always standing up for yourself. You know, grandma was instilling that in you too. So that was so that was important of your development as a person. And as you became a man and starting your career to always being able to stand up to yourself and have that moral compass, you know? Right. Yeah. So there's so much. But just to, uh, I want to talk about more about your activism and the uh, Police Officers for Equal Rights, the POER. What happened was that I came on, uh, there was only like out over 600, close to 700 police officers. There's only 13 black police officers. So we formed a club called the Cross and Shield, which was a club for black policemen and firemen. And it was discussed about how we can bring more blacks on the, on the fire in the police department. Now, most of these guys were much older than I. And, you know, I'm a Vietnam War veteran. These guys were post-Korea and maybe World War II veterans. So they had a different outlook. They just want to uh, do things, which I thought was great. We did things in the community as far as donating to different black projects, giving them money and uh, helping uh, the black community. That was our main focus. And we looked at discrimination and the way we were being treated, but we actually didn't uh, take up that initiative. So uh, one, the, the, the president of the Fraternal Order of Police made an application to join our organization. We turned him down. So they labeled us as a radical black organization because we would let him join our organization. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, a group of younger officers my age and one guy by the name of Ollie Stellafield, who was a Vietnam veteran, uh, he formed another group called Police Officers Equal Rights. And their main focus was to not only stop discriminatory practices, but to... Uh, uh, look at the way we were promoted and job assignment. For instance, I applied to be a motorcycle police officer 
They told me I wasn't tall enough, but there was other white officers on the squad that I was four and five inches taller than they were. Yeah, because you're six foot, so what do you, what, right, what do you mean? Had, right, they only had one uh, a, a black officer on a motorcycle squad. So, and there was no blacks in homicide. There was various bureaus that blacks couldn't go on. At the time, the, the police wagon, they did emergency service, like when the fire department was tied up, we provide that additional service. We would do first aid and stuff like that on the, on the wagon. So they didn't put blacks on the wagon because they said they didn't want black officers touching any white women. Hmm. So there were no black officers working a wagon. So a group of officers uh, filed a lawsuit against the city of Columbus uh, for discrimination and uh, promotion and hiring. But prior to that, in 1973, one of my good friends, you know him, Mr. Clyde Haney, mm-hmm. he had filed a lawsuit against the city for discrimination and hiring. And what happened was uh, they rejected him after he passed a test, him and another three black off, black civilians. So they filed a, a discriminatory lawsuit. They won in 1973. And what happened out of that lawsuit was that they came up with a, a consent decree where they had to hire 15 or 18% of each class had to be black. That was a federal court order. So then while that order is in place, they had the agility test where you had to pick up 100 pounds, jump over eight foot wall, push a, a car, which women could not perform a lot of these physical agilities. So another black female by the name of Eula Brandt, she filed a police to, uh, a federal lawsuit against the Columbus Police Department for discrimination against women, especially, especially black women, and she won. So they had two lawsuits that they lost. So in the police officer was right, when I joined the Crossing Shield, kind of like fell apart uh, being active. So we joined, I joined the police officer of rights and filed a lawsuit against the city of Columbus for discrimination and hiring, uh, also in, uh, you know, job transfers, the whole works. And so they retaliated against us. They, uh, they uh, monitored our phone calls. Uh, they notified Toronto Revenue that we had extra income that we did not claim. So they audited us. Uh, different supervisors will fall, uh, start filing uh, false charges on us and just, you know, treating us very uh, badly. I remember one time I was, I was involved with the police athletic league as a coach and I was handing out football equipment on Saturday morning at, at this park called Franklin Park. And I had my car parked on the roadside, but the kids were uh, getting in the street and I was scared that it might get hit by a car. So I positioned my car where the parking area was. I positioned on the grass for the kids could stand where the parking area were, but they wouldn't be in a pathway moving cars. 
Right. I noticed this car, police car, just was parked far away and just stood there for a long time. So I knew I saw the M one was a lieutenant. It was a white lieutenant car. Then these two white police patrolmen came up and told me uh, to move my car off the grass. I said, well, I can't do that. I said, if I do that, the kids get on the street and they might be hit. So they wrote me a ticket, a parking ticket. So I said, okay. So I, they said, well, you gonna move your car? I said, why should I move you? I wrote me a ticket, now I'm not moving it. I'm, I'm, I said, I feel that the kids will be in, uh, you know, <laughs> safe. In harm's way, yeah. Yeah, I'm not moving my car. So I didn't move my car. And so when I got off duty, this uh, lieutenant, they call him, his name was R.R., they call him Railroad. His name was Robert, I guess that, and he was a racist white lieutenant. So I, I get off duty. He's not even my lieutenant. He comes to our substation. He calls me in there. He says, uh, didn't uh, uh, those officers tell you to move the car? And I said, yes. He said, why did you move it? And I explained to him about the safety. He says, uh, well, I'm going to not only a ticket, I'm going to file charges on you. And uh, he started raising his voice. I said, don't you raise your voice at me. He said, what did you say? I said, no, you heard what I said. I said, don't you raise your voice at me. You want to talk to me? You talk in a normal voice. And he raised his voice again. I slammed the door in his face and walked out. So... I had a black lieutenant named Desi Harris. He was my lieutenant. So I explained to him what happened. So he said, I'll take care of this. So we go down to headquarters the next day. And Lieutenant Harris, I want to talk to you, Railroad. So we go in the room. And uh, he tells Lieutenant Harris. And, uh, and Lieutenant Harris said, first of all, he said, Sergeant Moss worked for me. If any discipline going to be done, I'm going to do it. He was doing a good deed for the community. And he said, this ticket right here, he tore it up right in front of him. He said, that's the end of the ticket. And he said, uh, you know, he was doing something for our community and you were wrong. If you had a problem with Sergeant Moss, you come to me. Don't you ever, uh, you know, he was off duty. You had no right to even talk to him. You had a problem with him, you come to me. I'm his lieutenant. And Lieutenant Harris is a big man. He's about six five, six seven. Mm. You know, and this guy's, you know, he's all out of shape and everything. So he turned all red. And I've gained a lot of respect for Lieutenant Harris by standing up for me. He could have just went along with the program. Right. Yeah, you know, and more than once, he he helped me when I was going to college at the time. And it's on the police department. He gave he gave me transfers where I could continue my education, didn't interrupt my studies get my uh, first uh, Bachelor of Arts degree. I tell everybody he was a, he was a good man. He took care of, you know, he stood what was, what was, you know, what was right. And he, he didn't play because he was a big guy and he stood up for his, uh, his black officers. Yeah. That's dope. The, the brotherhood. And like you said, it's, it's so important for us to be able to stick together and stick up for each other. And it's, when people are interacting with us and treating us a different way, it's because of our race. We have to be able to stick together and stand up for ourselves. I, I feel like that's the ongoing thing with this conversation. And uh, even, and it's interesting too, because I mean, I was a teenager and adolescent when you were going through 
or not even born yet when you're going through a lot of this. So by the time I was a teenager and the police officers for equal rights and I remember like growing up and I would, and, and you you will be such a like so active like you you get off work eat you know what I'm saying you always oh I got to go to the office and stuff and I was like how how busy can he really be in the you know in the office like that's what I was thinking but then in the times where I was like helping out and I I never forget one time I was. Uh, I was answering phones at the at the at the police officers for equal rights office, and this guy he called and he had like a really muffled voice. Like he was like, "Hey, is uh, you know, Sergeant Marshall," and I'm and we having this conversation. I'm like, "Why? Why does he sound like that?" Well, he, he goes to tell me he got shot in the face by a police officer, and he was in the hospital, you know, calling. Uh, to get some uh, information about how to file a complaint, how to file a lawsuit or all those things. So like, that was just like one call that always stuck with me. And uh, yeah, it was just like a lot of calls and like radio interviews of you trying to bring awareness of all of the mistreatments and things that were going on in the community that uh, police officers were doing. And a lot of times people are very critical of police officers and police departments. And here was a group who were y'all really trying to help out and, and make a difference, you know? And, and the, the, the most difficult, when I was really active and present, police officers could write was that uh, Chief Jackson, who's black, he yeah, was Yeah, but, uh, yeah, but all, all skin folk and kin folk. Right, and he filed charges after charges on me trying to get me fired. There was one incident where I was uh, on WBKO radio. They had a format like I would come on any time, any type of news fact in the community, they would let me speak. So I was on the radio about five o'clock in the morning explaining uh, a racial incident. And before I always talk, I said, the, the comments that I'm making is not as a police sergeant on the Columbus Police Department, I'm making these comments as president of police office, police officers for equal rights. I'm using my First Amendment right, freedom of speech, to express my views. And I would say that every time I talk, but Chief Jackson was at the airport and he heard me talking about calling these captain races and things they were doing. He called the deputy chief, told the deputy chief, he want an uh, investigation on me and filed charges on me for talking on the radio like that against the police department. Right there showed how he was buying into that code of silence, brotherhood. But uh, that just gave me a more format to talk. And then I end up getting my own radio talk show. So I really flooded the airs. But WBKO really gave me that. Anything would happen, I would be on the air. You know, anytime I had that, they would give me access to talk on the radio. And that was one reason how the POER became so notable in the, in the community, because I had that format. I would come on during the news hour or anytime explaining something racial event that happened in our community or the police department. And they really didn't like that. And uh, they, you know, they tried to get me off the air and, and, uh, 
it didn't didn't work. But the one person who who really uh, uh, tried to destroy the police officer equal rights was Chief Jackson. In the history of, he became the chief in 1990, and he fired more black officers and fired more disciplined uh, charges against black officers than any white police chief in the history of the police department. That's so crazy. So I tell people today, just because a, a black person leadership is black, doesn't mean he's for the right thing because his main thing was keep that brotherhood going, that silence code, and try to hide the racism and injustice of the police department. He benefited by it because he became chief. And the reason he became chief, uh, Sam Gresham, who was the leader of Urban League, and myself, we developed a plan. I took two weeks vacation time and me and Sam Gresham, who's the president of Urban League, we contacted every black police union, every black ranking chief and officials, even mayors and city council people throughout the United States. We called them, sent letters, and we were able to get over a thousand letters to the mayor to telling him from these outside organizations and police officials to pick James Jackson as the next chief of police in the first in our city in the history to be the first black police chief. And for and he knew, because I told him what we were doing at the time, and he really was glad that we were doing that. And so uh, and then it was just a gift of God. I applied for a job in the in the detective bureau as a sergeant of a theft bureau. And I had the rank, I had everything, I got the job. And this deputy, white deputy chief named James Rudder, who was in the run for chief also, he did not give me the job. He said I had charges pending, but I did have a charge pending by the chief on another racial incident involving a white officer who wouldn't move his he, he yelled at me about moving my car to substation and I ended up filing charges on him. So to make a long story short, I filed a complaint against the deputy chief who was running against Jackson for uh, chief of police. And this went to the Civil Rights Commission and our EEO officer and both the Civil Rights Commission and the EEO officer found Deputy Chief Rudder guilty of discrimination. I ended up uh, getting a job, and so that was a bad mark. And he got on the radio, white radio station, said that you know I stopped him from being chief, and and he retaliated retaliated against me because when I got that job, I started work on that Sunday. They dissolved the, my job that Friday. Wow! And and, and uh, burglary squad. Hmm. <laughs> so those are the type of things. Uh, that went on. And I think today as I look at an incident where these six black Atlanta police officers stopped this young lady and boy, they were stopped in traffic. And the girl said, you know, what did we do? They took a baton and smashed the glass. Then they took a taser, tased the young lady, the young boy behind. He said, what did I, you know, why you stopping us? They tased him, drug him out of the car. This, I'm looking at this live on camera, you know, on TV. 
And they all, I think two of them got fired right there on the scene and the mayor ain't up going, uh, I think she's going to fire the other four and she's going to file criminal charges on the two. So these are all black officers. So again, you get hired in the police department and you get in this police culture where unethics and illegal things are done and you buy into it and you know you're protected by the police union and your fellow officers. So you think you can. You're above, they think they're above the law. Above the law and, uh, you know, and do things like that, think they can get away with it. So I was really glad that Mayor Bottoms, you know, did what she did. So yeah. know, these are the things that happen all the time were when I was on the police department, it was incident after incident of police brutality and nothing was done. So, well, I mean, I, I just feel like it's just so crazy how, well, it's even more evident because people are doing these things because they know they'll get away with it and they know they won't get punished. So, I don't know, it was this one, ah, I can't remember the the book I was reading. I think it was by Malcolm Gladwell, but he was talking about how um, when people get away with stuff and they come close with getting caught, right? rarely do they reform. They just become more brazen and doing more illegal stuff. So if you get away with it once and you almost get caught, they're not going to say, oh, no, I almost got caught. Let me stop. More oftentimes than not, they uh, continue. And that seems like what is happening because even with the, uh, you know, these police officers. And oh, that's another thing. With police officers for equal rights, y'all was doing workshops. Uh, I remember one workshop y'all did, what to do when stopped by the police. Yes. And uh, you were, you know, engaging with the community about how to uh, – file complaints because if if a, if a police officer kills an unarmed citizen and then they do research on them and they're like, oh, this is the, 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 this is totally out of the character. This is the first time you've ever done anything. But if they have 20 complaints before that incident, then we know that person is a problem. So I think it, it was always a, a good thing that you know, the police officer equal rights were encouraging people to file formal complaints so they would have a, a paper trail to... Right. Uh, to, also, to what happened know. was in 1995, I had accumulation of charges filed on me by Chief Jackson. And what would happen was... Who you helped get the position. <laughs> we, would, we would go to the hearing... And I wasn't able to get the evidence against the supervisor, his background, his personnel file, but they have all my records out there, but I couldn't see his records and also couldn't see the initial complaint until we got in the hearing in front of Chief Jackson or safety director. Mm -hmm. So uh, Spader and Giddes Law Firm, myself, we filed a lawsuit that states that as far as public records that I should be able to get all public records of police officers not under investigation. Also, citizens should get that. So it went all the way to the House Supreme Court, and I won that case. And what it did, it opened up 
uh, all the records of the police department. So POER, we spent over $10,000 because it was charging us five cents or whatever the page. We got records of, of, their, of all the police stuff and we use this later to file a complaint with the Justice Department because we saw things that was just, this blew his mind were illegal shootings, uh, all type of stuff where we saw records of it. We saw where Deputy Chief was drunk, hit a car, you know, nothing was done when he wasn't charged with drunk driving. I mean, it was just loads of stuff that we were able, I would sit for hours and look through the records and request copies, you know, and had this great big room. And uh, that's one thing that led to further lawsuits against the city because of that. And what this did was this case became a, a format throughout the United States. Once I won this case, I went to one of our national black police conventions and there was a, uh, there was a person there, I think from New Jersey, East coast or somewhere. He found about the lawsuit. He took it back and got it passed in his assembly. And then what happened is start like a snowball. It went through all the 50 states where citizens were able to get police records. And the starting point was the lawsuit that I filed with the House Supreme Court. That's right. That's my dad. <laughs> That's where <laughs> are able to get uh, uh, police records and, and report of their misconduct. So that was a, a, a big case. And uh, to be involved in that, and also it led for me to uh, file more legal action against the Columbus Police Department because I was able to get uh, the records. It was so interesting when I uh, was bringing this case against the Columbus Police Department, Chief Jackson ordered this uh, Captain Burns and to uh, police headquarters and he would come in like two or three o'clock in the morning and he was shredding records. Wow. And uh, he got caught and the court issued a junction from shredding records. And again, you had a black chief that knew this was going on and felt he, uh, you know, he failed to do anything about it, but the court issued a junction against him. Uh, for shredding the records because they knew I was coming after the records. Yeah, that's crazy how brazen they were. So I'm I'm glad you're able to do all that work and I'm you know, and I think what's also super important about that about you sharing that story is how I feel like a lot of people can get kind of meek or 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 you know they would rather vent to people than actually take the proper steps to get things done because I understand the reluctance because they fear of like blow you know blow back and uh oh, yeah. you and all that but but in the in the long run for you if you didn't do that and it didn't get to the national black police association and then they didn't use that as a template to go around the nation so it's like everyone's voice really does matter and really does really do count so i really appreciate that uh yeah and then did that. Year too, i want to tell you what they did they tapped my phones at home and at the office, and then they cut my telephone line. So police officers did that. We had my attorney, John Wiley, we had to bring in an FBI agent. They did an investigation. How uh, uh, Bell guy came by one day, and I told him, he said, well, Mr. Moss, somebody tapped into your line 
where we lived in a place called Eastgate, and there was a road to where ran a injunction to our street called Nelson Road. He said somebody had tapped our line, and at times I would get death threats at home, then I would get this loud squilling noise, real loud, look like you're going to burst your eardrums, and I would get these death threats. I gave it all to the FBI, and amazing that all those threats came from disconnected phones. And they found out that somebody was in the phone bank at the, where all the lines were, and they said only people that had access to that would be people working there or the police department. Right. I got a lot of death threats, and then... Yeah, I, I remember you used to always say, like, it was, it was some times where y'all wouldn't let me answer the phone. So, right. I, I, yeah, I remember yeah, that. Really derogatory things they would be saying on the phone about me and your mother and about killing us and stuff like that. And I really didn't want you guys uh, to hear that. That's why I didn't want you guys to answer phone and they would make these calls continuously, you know, all through the night. Yeah. I remember we get our phone changed and we would still get them. Every time we change our number, we would still uh, uh, get these calls. And like I said, we had the FBI involved uh, with that. And, uh, I remember one late one night I was working on a complaint against the police department. I had gone to, to Justice Department in DC about six times taking complaints and records. And I was working, it was like one o'clock in the morning and I I walked home, but usually guys out in front drinking and playing cards. There's a barbershop right there, Frank Cole's barbershop. Mm-hmm. So I get a call early in the morning about five in the morning when the guy said, you need to come, I go to my office. They had shot up my office. Uh, they shot the glass windows out. This chair that I sit in, I always sit in front where people could see me at night. The chair that I was sitting in had a bullet hole in it. They had shot the chair I was sitting in. So when I called the police, uh, they didn't, I had the, the, the bullet, you know, the spin it round was there and the lead there. They didn't even take it. And they didn't even mark it off as a crime scene. It was nonchalant, you know, about uh, taking pictures and getting uh, evidence. And uh, so I made a complaint about that, but nothing ever was done. And the guys told me that they knocked it off about two in the morning and this one guy that lived in the neighborhood, he said he saw police cars adjacent. I mean, there was a substation about a hundred yards away, six precinct. And it's just like a T intersection. He said he saw some police cars in front of my office. The next thing you know, here are all these uh, gunshots. gunshots, but he said he was scared to come out because he didn't know what the police would do. So I gave that information. Of course, they didn't, they failed to do anything about it. But shortly after that, you know, it was God's will that the Justice Department came down on the police department and found them guilty of discriminatory practice against the citizens of Columbus. So it, it worked out fine. But, uh, you know, there was a, another incident where I was taking care of a friend of my house, uh, house and I was doing some paintings and repairs and there was a crack house next door. And I had called the narcotics and complained about the crack house. Well, I was 
up on a, a ladder painting and then I went inside, I was doing some work. The next thing I know, I see a lot of police cars outside. So I go out to the front, I start to the front door and the police came in, told me to put my hands up. And I put my hands up, they asked me, you know, what was I doing? I said, uh, um, I'm doing work here. They asked for my ID and I said, I don't have no ID, my ID's in my car. And I said, what's the problem? They said, well, we got a call. There's a burglary on it. And I started laughing. I said, do I look like a burglar? I had paint all over my pants, buckets of paints there. And I started laughing. And the guy said, well, how do we know you're not a burglar? I said, I mean, any people come and say, no, I'm not a burglar. And uh, he said, one thing led to another, but he said something smart. And I started laughing. He took his... 45 and he put it by my head. He said, let's go to the car. And I couldn't believe he did that. So I walked to the car and they handcuffed me and put me in the car. And he said, you know, who are you? I said, I told you before, my driver license and everything is in my car. I pointed to my car, it's unlocked, it's in my wallet there. So they get it out and uh, they found out who I was. And one guy said, that's James Moss, the troublemaker. And then one guy said, hey, man, why didn't you just tell us, white police officer? Why didn't you tell us who you were? Why you give us a hard time? I said, I didn't give you a hard time. You gave me a hard time. I said, you the one came and called me a burglar and put the gun in my head and put, put cuffs on me and put me in the car. I'm giving you a hard time. And so they uncuffed me and they said, man, that's all you had to tell us who you were. I said, no, that's all you had to do was, was uh, you know, but it doesn't matter who you are. Right, they, right. they shouldn't treat anybody like that. Right, and I told him you should have just treated me like any ordinary citizen. So I uh, did a, uh, a, a call my attorney, John Waddy, and we did a press conference about the whole incident. I filed a complaint with the internal uh, affairs about the gun. Of course, nothing was done. And what I did... I got on TV the next day, I went to City Hall, we had a press conference, I said, since, you know, these officers did that to me, I, I took pictures of them, and I said, I'm gonna put their addresses and pictures all through our community for people to know who they are. Well, the FOP got on TV and said, there's gonna file charges on me, and I couldn't do it, and the city attorney said, Sergeant Moss is legal, what he can do. He can put address and pictures of police. There's no against, there's not against the law. So I, I told him, you know, you, you know, you come in our community, don't give us our name and address. So I put a uh, picture, picture up like a wanted poster sign <laughs> with officers involved in it. Mm -hmm. Your address and stuff to the news media. And uh, they became very upset and more death threats became uh, more <laughs> about that. Yeah, uh, I remember them like parking outside of the front of the, the of, of our house and trying to intimidate, right? Intimidate you and stuff. Like, yeah, I remember. So, yeah. so I got a uh, just one last question. We could wrap this up. Thank you for all of this. It's good. Um, so the last thing is. Can you give a, well, I feel like you already kind of answered this through your stories, but the last question is uh, giving a specific examples about how you actively 
help and empower other black men and black boys uh, combat yeah. racism and negative well, stereotypes and well, any I solutions? Well, what I did, one thing I did, I, I gave the community a vehicle to file a complaint, to help them file a complaint. And with the system of John Waddy and other attorneys, we won a lot of lawsuits for everyday citizens. Uh, saved uh, police officers. They, it was six black police officers in the police academy, and they fired all of them. I went to to Department of Justice. I got the jobs back, and plus with back pay. Uh, so my thing is that you really got to have courage and desire to help people when racism is stopping them economically to make advancement in any type of job. You have to stand up and fight them in the courts and do action. And behind that, you have to be strong enough to know that you're going to be harassed. You're going to get death threats. They're going to retaliate against you any way they can. But I believe in almighty God, when you're doing things that's right and that what is just, that God's going to protect you and he also is going to protect you not only physically but economically because uh, even though they try to take away my livelihood and do other things to affect the economics of my family, I was able still to provide for my family. And also I feel good that I was able to help other people fight for injustice and special racism and uh, police brutality by the Columbus Police Department in all areas of life. So as a young uh, man, you young people listening, you must stand up uh, for your rights. You must fight when you know that injustice has been done for you. Just don't take it and say, oh, that's okay. I, I'll just go someplace else. No, that's not the answer. You need to stand up and, and fight in the courts by legal means. And uh, of course, we know that courts are all not favorable to you, but still you can use the courts to make uh, your position and awareness of what's going on to you and you in your community. Just don't sit down and take it. You know, you need to always be strong and fight for what you believe in. I mean, not, you know. Not always physically, I understand. But uh, through the legal process. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's what more young people, I'm just glad to see more young people out in the street protesting and standing up for their rights and understand uh, the Constitution and how they uh, provide a vehicle for you uh, to do these things. So it's, I really like it. And I, and I'm, I don't regret anything that I've done in my lifetime as far as uh, fighting for others and their rights not only through police department, through the black veterans that I meet with, I help black veterans get their disability and, and help them any way I can. So that's another crusade that I do because a lot of black vets, we don't get our disability, we don't get our medals, we don't get a lot of things. So that's another crusade that I, I support. All right. All right, thanks again, Dad, for uh Okay. Taking the time out of your busy retirement schedule <laughs> to uh, to talk with your son. Yeah, so I love you, Dad. I look up to you not just because you're taller than me, 
So because I'm proud of you and all the things that you've done and then like me being a dart now, hearing you tell these stories because now that I'm a, a grown man, it, it really, I have a, a new appreciation for everything that you've done because I can actually understand it because of what, of my experiences and, uh, and all the things that you did to help make sure that we were good and had everything that we needed, you know? So yeah, again, that's, that's because my father, I saw fire. My father worked hard. And so I appreciate the, what he instilled in me about working hard and taking care of your family. So, you know, working in the police department, then working special duty to provide the best education uh, for my sons and daughters. That's what it's all about. You know, I tell a lot of people, you know, we live in a, a good neighborhood, had a good house. Uh, we could move in a higher expensive neighborhood, but uh, I invested in the education of my children, you know, by making sure that my children had the best education opportunities to help them in life. And so, you know, I don't regret the work that I did, working the hours I did to pay for the tuition for all of you to have the best education possible. And uh, you guys all make me very proud of what you've done with yourselves as far as through college and grad school and jobs. So it paid off. You give me five dollars to the mom, please. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you six. How about that? <laughs> uh, all right, Dad. I'll uh, talk to you later. Love you. Me too. Okay. All right. Bye.